0: Chapter 18, if you have your Bible with you tonight. Back in uh, chapter 17, verse 1, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls told John that he would be shown the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. In verse 16, there was a prelude to that, but tonight in chapter 18, we Hear the full story. John isn't giving the details of one literal city's destruction, but by using the language of a great city being destroyed, like Rome in the minds of John's audience, since they were the expression of the beast that that church had to deal with in their lifetimes. He is describing God's judgment on the worldwide satanic system of evil that has corrupted earth throughout its entire history. God is going to put an end to this, an end to what this world currently is, and everything in it. John draws in particular tonight from, with his language from the Old Testament accounts of earthly Babylon's destruction back in Isaiah and Jeremiah, as well as some language from the city of Tyre's destruction in Ezekiel 26 and 27, and John basically writes this as a Uh, or is given the vision as this kind of great song of lamentation for the dead, really. The fall of Babylon happens in four sections in chapter 18. We'll look at each one that climaxes with the rejoicing of the faithful once Babylon has been destroyed and its judgment is finally complete. So in the fall of Babylon, God will finally vindicate His faithful people who have been oppressed and even martyred by the beast throughout history and this is our hope beloved again revelation keeps reiterating this that one day evil will be no more god knows all of it he's aware of all of it satan's kingdom will be destroyed and sin and death and suffering will end in the judgment of our god so let's pray and we'll look at this passage together our lord we thank you tonight for the promise of your son's return And the eternal life and bliss of your people and God we thank you that you will judge evil and in the meantime Father we pray for your mercy to extend to even the worst of us as it has already but Father would you mobilize your church and tonight Father in this passage and in the state of our world as we look at it tonight would you please remind us of who we are And the task that we have been given in light of these words. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help me preach. Help all to listen. Amen. Amen. We read the first three verses here of chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So in this first section, these first three verses, an angel predicts the coming, the final fall of Babylon the Great in verses 1 and 2. This angel who comes down from heaven having great authority that made the earth bright with his glory is either, as some see the reigning Christ himself, being portrayed as a messenger, but I think more likely an angel that specifically or especially reflects God's glory as his emissary and his agent of this revelation. In verse 2 are the consequences of Babylon's judgment the great prostitute who promoted idolatry and revelled in demonic power will basically become the dwelling place of the dead and the judged and the condemned Isaiah 13 and 34 give the background for these words and these old testament texts it speaks of these detestable beasts it gives different labels for them one of them is wild goats which we realize here because of revelation is referring most likely to demons any time We see these repeated phrases of what happened in God's destruction in the Old Testament of earthly Israel's enemies. They point us to what will happen in the final judgment against the world and Satan himself. Isaiah 13 and 34 describe the destruction of literal, historical Babylon and Edom. Both passages foresee a time when Israel's enemies would be utterly destroyed. Humans would no longer dwell in these now desolate cities. The the desert animals would. It would become a haunt for them. But Isaiah 34:14, in particular also foreshadows that text as the future and final judgment of demons when it uses the phrase night bird or night monster. And I know that's very particular, but just stay with me. Because you see every unclean bird showing up here in 18, verse 2. This is the Hebrew word lilith. In ancient Babylon, in their study of demons, as they understood evil spirits, Lilith referred to a witch who stole children. Sometimes to Adam's first wife before Eve, as they saw it, who was the mother of all demons. Or just this night demon that roamed in dark and desolate places. These were scary times. After biblical times, speculation about Lilith even appeared in Judaism. She was a demon demon. Um, to seduce men in their dreams, murdered young children. She was especially threatening when a woman was giving childbirth. Again, as, as it was understood or so, it was believed at the time. Recently, Lilith has become a symbol, of course, for feminism because nothing celebrates matriarchy and femininity apparently better than murdering children and killing men. So Lilith is this inspiration this muse lilith is the spirit of the age beloved this is one of the spirits of the age some uh, textual scholars even regard there's a phrase in psalm 91:5 the terror of the night to be referring to lilith when we remember that revelation is the capstone of all biblical prophecy this is revelation is where the bible intentionally pulls all these threads together then we can understand that the fall of Babylon in Revelation 18 is ultimately the destruction of the demonic world and all of Satan's emissaries in their assault and their attempt to overrun planet Earth with their kingdom. In verse 3, John tells us why Babylon is being judged. It's not literal sexual immorality because, clearly, there can't be sexual relations with a city or a nation. Although the immorality of the world system has always included literal rampant sexual immorality that gets worse and worse as time goes on. But here the phrase, the sexual immorality recalls how it's so often been used in scripture once again in Revelation as a phrase for religious, spiritual, even philosophical idolatry. The idea being that if you pledge your allegiance to the state and give your heart and your desires over to the beast and serve him, you'll have material security. All your needs will be provided for. You'll be safe. You hear it in the mantra today. That you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. You ever heard that yet? Yeah. This is, beloved, it's it's satanic. It's satanic. Always has been. This is always the promise of earthly kingdoms, right? Trust us. We're here to help. Beloved, such promises drip with demonic venom that will paralyze us to see the truth. And even today, what does the global state so to speak, Babylon, if we could call it that. What does she threaten if we don't obey her, if we don't line up, if we don't step in line? We won't have economic security. We won't have wealth. We won't have well-being. We won't have peace. If we don't worship the worldwide system and cooperate with its idolatry, we'll be hopeless and destitute. And that kind of security is too great a temptation for most to resist. Even Christians, it's very hard sometimes to know, what do I do? But once we drink Babylon's wine and believe its lies, its intoxicating power takes away all our resistance to lies and to evil, and we become blind to the fact that it's actually insecurity that we get when we trust in the state. And so we reject God as the only source of real security, and we become too numb to fear judgment. So in the next section, a voice from heaven calls God's people away from this, away from this worldly system called Babylon the Great. So we pick up the next section in verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. So... The reason for this exhortation to come away is because of what's being prophesied for Babylon. Judgment is coming, and God would have His people come away from her. Again, there's not a literal city or place that we're running to. We run into Christ, who is our strong tower, who is our refuge. God calls His people out for two reasons here. First, so that they don't take part in the sins of Babylon. And secondly, so that His people won't suffer judgment and be caught up In his wrath, it's important to remember that not all the people in the seven churches that John is writing to were poor and persecuted people, like the ones in Smyrna definitely were, but not all of them. Many of these believers, if not most, would have been wealthy, according to those standards in that day, self-sustaining, and in this, John sees the temptation, the danger Of compromise and it's always there when we are able to establish some sense of security for ourselves right it's not that being secure or leveraged financially or something is a sin it isn't what the Bible would say is listen just be mindful of how that can deceive you and steal your heart I want you to come away from this John wants the people in these seven churches to come away from Babylon because Babylon is ripe for judgment for such sins as these, being deceived by this promise of hope and security and financial stability. Most of the seven cities where these letters were sent were prosperous ones, stable ones. They were important to the empire, some for maritime wealth, um, as well as being religious and administrative centers. These were very strategic locations, as we talked about way back in the beginning of Revelation. The angels commanded, verse 4, is to disassociate themselves spiritually from the evil of Rome, or they will share in her guilt and judgment. So, the command is basically, listen, you do not want to be in the company of those who are mourning because Babylon has fallen. Don't weep for the world, for a worldly kingdom. Don't weep when it falls down. Don't get attached. It's all passing away. Because of sin, all of it. We have to hear this. This is God speaking to you people. This isn't me. Alright, don't get attached. Don't. Come out of her is God's command. At least mentally and spiritually. In, but not of, beloved. The fact that Babylon's sins are heaped as high as heaven... In verse 5 is a phrase speaking to the extreme depths of human sin and the certainty of judgment. Like we saw in Jonah, chapter 1, verse 2, Ezra, chapter 9, verse 6. Anytime that sins are, have come up to God, they've reached that high. It's talking about this totality of immorality and sin and wickedness. God doesn't remember these sins in the sense that He had forgotten about him, and then they got up there. And he was like, oh, that's right, these people are evil. It's, it's not that at all. God keeps a record for all those outside of Christ. Nations and people, God will render to them the very equivalent in judgment of what they have done. The punishment will fit the crime. When sin is extensive, judgment is extensive. and this is the world that God is judging. the whole world' system set up against Christ, set up against this church. In the second part of verse seven, you can even see how arrogant the world is. God knows that the world is arrogant. Look there in verse seven, since in her heart she says, "I sit as a queen. I am no widow." and morning I shall never see. Worldly Babylon has a breathtakingly false sense of security and honestly believes it is too powerful for judgment. It's immune to God's warnings, right? Just like historical Babylon was acting in Isaiah. It foreshadowed the whole world's attitude towards God when the whole world is united against Him. Just as with old Babylon, the worldly Babylon sees itself as like the cradle of civilization. This world system, this is uh, the very source of the world's needs and its provision. This is, you know, the world believes it's the mother of all the living, that she nourishes them. listen, Listen to the elite talk nowadays. Listen to the words they use and the things they say. Who is Klaus Schwab? Who is that? Why is he making decisions for the world? Why do people like Bill Gates get to decide, like, population numbers and whether or not the world is overly populated. And why do these things happen? These beloved, these aren't conspiracies. The idea of the great reset is a term that they use, not me, right? There's a, there's a plot here. Like we have to open our eyes to this. Worldly Babylon has complete confidence, right? You listen to these guys talk. They, they act like they just, they're, they're the Kings of the world. And and our potential is limitless. And basically the assumption behind it is there's no God. We decide who runs this world and who determines its destiny. Beloved, that's Satan at work. Satan and his minions at work. He tried to tell us in Ephesians, you're not battling against flesh and blood. Stop thinking that's where the battle is. It's not. You battle against principalities and powers in the heavenly places, in the highest places of spiritual demonic authority. That's where the fight is. That's who's behind all of this. Worldly Babylon has complete confidence that she will, as G.K. Beale says, never be without the support of her children. But Babylon's children are as doomed as she is. Their confidence is a delusion. It is absolute idolatry. So the warning to the church is evident, and it echoes the warning to the church in Laodicea, in particular back in 3.17. Come out of this. Don't compromise in this. As Sam Storms paraphrases, beware of trusting in economic security. The world may appear to provide a firewall against future distress, but it is merely an illusion. Beloved, when it comes to money and possessions and security and safety, we must learn to think like those whose home is not here and who no matter what they had cannot build or keep a lasting city here. Do, do, do we, can we understand the implications of God's word there? Here we have no lasting city. How clear does it have to be? Right, this, this, this isn't going to turn out for us. This is passing away. The need in the world is too great to just sit on what we have. Like if we, if we're careful with it, we'll never lose it. Yes, we will. We, didn't, we weren't given what we're given to sit and let it collect interest, right? I mean, we remember the parables. We know how Jesus spoke. That He, he doesn't like that. Oh, I, I sat on everything you gave and I collected interest because I wanted, you know, I knew you were a tough master. No, 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 no. I didn't give you that to increase it. It's all false. The world is lying to you and me. Only what is sown for Christ will last. The great prostitute says... I'm no widow, In verse 7. That's a strange thing to say. There was no accusation that she's a widow. I won't be crying about anything. One of the common results of war is, of course, the slaughter of adult males, right? Of war and all these things, many of which are husbands and fathers. And so that creates widows and orphans, some of the most vulnerable of our society. Worldly Babylon believes it's immune to such things and such need and such sorrow. The world scoffs at the idea of judgment, right? Because they take things going so well as evidence that they're safe and they're okay and that even if there is a God, He's not powerful enough to stop them. They're they're storing up judgment is what is happening. Things are going too well for me, right? I'm I'm moving up. I'm on my way. Nothing can stop me. Judgment will stop everybody and everything. Everything. Often in Scripture, widow is the metaphor used to describe cities and nations who have been defeated in war and have been left desolate. Right, look at verse 8 one more time here. For this reason, this confidence, this arrogance, this belief in false security, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The impending judgment coming on this world will result exponentially in what happened to literal historical cities after war. Pestilence, famine, destruction by fire will destroy everything, and the mourning from this will be endless. Babylon thinks she is strong. The world thinks it is strong. But all her strength and pomp and provision will vanish in a single day, so to speak, in the face of God's judgment. And so we pick up the next section in verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of those wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear for torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? Notice in verse 15 that Babylon, again, the ruling spiritual system of this whole world, the state, has been the main consumer of all the world's production. So the end of Babylon means the end of prosperity for the merchants of the world, the people of the world. And they are lamenting here for purely selfish reasons. It's their own personal financial loss. And we even have a list of trade products and goods and wares in verses 12 and 13, meaning that Babylon will be too destitute to buy anything. There's even background for this list in Ezekiel 27, 7 to 25, where 15 of the 28 items listed here appear there. Remember in Revelation... Four is the number used for the whole world. So it's no accident that the list of items that Babylon or Rome, as they understood it, imports from the merchants of the earth in verses 11 through 13, it's 28. 28 is four times seven. So these represent all the products of the whole world. These are stand-ins for just saying everything. And while staples are included in this list, so are luxuries. And again, these items aren't evil in and of themselves, except for maybe one, and that would be human slaves. Notice the caveat there. The world would say slaves. God would say, no, 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 you mean human souls. You mean people that you've devalued. John is not condemning wealth and possessions in Revelation 18 per se, again, but the greed and materialism that feeds our pursuit of such things and the selfish hoarding that might exist, which is what the love of money always produces. The love of money is the deception of Babylon the Great. It's a sickness. A spiritual sickness. And again, notice that when slaves are mentioned in verse 13, it clarifies human souls. So the slavery being addressed here as evil is that which dehumanizes people and treats them as property. This was, is, is. And will be a part of the world's evil. It even is today. Um, Human trafficking. Right? Which is horrendous. Horrendous. These are enslaved people. God doesn't see people as property to be owned. Right? He sees people as people. The fruit for which your souls longed in verse 14. That Babylon was committed to satisfying itself with economic wealth instead of worshiping God. That is evident. And verse 15 simply repeats verses 9 through 11. In verses 16 and 17, the strength of Babylon was this wealth, these resources. And wealth is temporary, it's transient. But money makes people think that they're powerful and immune and indestructible. But wealth and all it brings us in this world isn't worthy of our soul's trust, beloved. From cinnamon to empire's. Look at the second part of 17. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, what city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. The focus here on the sea merchants That's because that would have been the primary means of commerce in John's day. The sailors here are all those in economic association with worldly Babylon. All those profiting from serving her. Again, the language is very similar to verses 9-11, through except it adds this idea of them throwing dust on their heads. This isn't repentance in dust and ashes. It's an expression of sorrow for their loss. They, They know now that they are going to suffer. They found out that the God they trusted in is powerless to provide for or deliver them. Which brings us to the last section in verses 20 and 24. And the rejoicing of God's people when her oppressor is finally destroyed. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpets will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. I am going to utterly destroy her, and I want you to celebrate when it happens. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 51, 48. Heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. That text spoke of the judgment of the historical empire of Babylon. Here in these words from Revelation 18, just as their cause or their judgment was a cause for celebration, how much more the judgment of the big Babylon, eschatological Babylon, the Babylon of human history, period. Talk about rejoicing. And look at that phrase at the end of verse 20. For God has given judgment for you against her. Now, these verses, along with 19, 1 through 5, we'll see God willing next week, these verses contain the consummation, beloved, of God's response to the prayer of the martyred saints under the altar back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. In other words, when they cried out, how long? God has been answering. He loves his children. God will vindicate both the honor of his name and also the faithfulness of those of faithfulness of those who were killed for the testimony of Jesus. And when it comes, it will be conclusive. So the graphic judgment of Babylon we've seen is portrayed again here in these stunning images in verses twenty one to twenty four, based on ancient Babylon's judgment in Jeremiah fifty one, sixty three, Tyre's judgment in Ezekiel twenty six twelve, the end of the satanic global empire called Babylon will be like a giant millstone flung into the sea that sinks into oblivion in verse 21. And the world is tied to her and goes down with her. Suddenly she will be gone forever. All her workers and artisans will be gone. All the designers, all the ones pulling the strings, they'll be gone. No more music from them, no more crafts from them, no more art, no more merchandise, no more profit. Gone. As Dennis Johnson and G.K. Beale note, Babylon, who took away the joy of life from God's people, will have all her own pleasures taken away in cataclysmic judgment for three reasons in the text. First in verse 23, because your merchants were the great ones of the earth. The label great one is reserved for the Lord, the true source of all life on the earth. Only God is worthy of such praise and glory for provision, Right? Their sin there is like that of Nebuchadnezzar's sin in Daniel 4. Do you remember? You better stop exalting yourself and acting like you gave yourself all these things. And they're not in my hand. The second reason all she has will be taken away is because the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Beloved, we have to wake up to spiritual warfare. Satan and his demons are pulling the strings here please don't ever forget that what what you are seeing around you is the influence of the evil one we're at war with principalities and powers 24/7 we we have our eyes on people and things and governments and empires and that's not those are the edge of these things it's fighting against them is like again like taking cough medicine to cure lung cancer Babylon has bewitched the nations with idolatry. They've made them, they've literally made people sick and drunk and deceived. They've tried to convince everyone that the world is great. You are great. The state is great. But glory and greatness belong to God and to God alone. Lastly, Babylon is judged and has everything taken from it because she persecuted God's people. In verse 24, that's the climax. So in the fall of Babylon the Great, God will finally vindicate His faithful people who have been oppressed and even martyred by the beast throughout history. I got an email this morning from Open Doors USA. I love this group. I get a prayer list from them each month of kind of the most urgent needs, but there's also a global calendar they give you to a nation to pray for each week out of the year. I think I've talked about it before. It's free to subscribe to that. So if you want to do that, just find Open Doors USA on the internet and you can Get those resources and start getting email reports. But this this morning, less than a week ago on Friday, July 15th, at the time the email was written, a 44-year-old pastor, John Mark Chietnam, was kidnapped from his church in Nigeria by extremists and killed the same day. This year alone, four of the 20 kidnapped Nigerian church leaders have been killed in captivity. The writer of the email says, I don't have to tell you that the violence against Christians in Nigeria is escalating exponentially. Just six months into this year, the country is on track to exceed last year's death toll, which was already the world's highest last year. And God knows there's, there's pictures of 10 of these people in this email. Beautiful faces. Beautiful. Dead. Dead slaughtered for the name of Christ. And God will remember every single one. Now, it is very easy to hear news like that, like we've been hearing all of our lives, right? Christians in other places are being martyred and killed for their faith. We don't have that here yet, at least not sanctioned in any way by the government, not yet. Will that happen in our lifetime? I don't know. It, it sure seems like it could, but I, I don't know. But would you be willing, even though many of us may not agree on, on the shape of things in the end times, you, you couldn't use the idea of the rapture as like, sh- I don't have to ever worry about being persecuted. God will pull the church out before that happens. Baloney. Tell that to the rest of the Christians in the world. In other words, even if the rapture happens like most of us as Baptists think it will happen, it doesn't mean we can't be martyred. Right? I mean, look at the church around the world. And this is our family. These are our brothers and sisters. So, beloved, our church has to make some decisions. Moundsville Baptist Church has to make some decisions. Do we want to be a part of this or do we not? Right? I mean, what are we going to fight over? What are we going to spend our time consumed with? What's going to set us against each other? What's going to consume our hearts and our minds and what are going to be the agendas and desires we have that are going to run our thinking And desires for our church. Because if they aren't connected with what God is doing. They're working against Him. Look, I don't. I'm not a custodian of traditions. I don't want to be that. If that's what you want, you have to tell me. Because if that's the case, I'm not your guy. Okay? I'm not here for that. We're at war. We're at war, beloved. And many of our fellow soldiers are being murdered every day. You will never hear. It's so hilarious the way the world treats Africa in particular. Right? It's just You'll never hear about the slaughter of Nigerian Christians on American TV. You'll never hear about It's not important until, you know, some type of threat is made to where we'll get our oil. Then we'll rush in there, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not a politician, and I know I don't know all the stuff, but I mean, the slaughter of humanity in Africa, come on. And around the rest of the world, it's just, like, these are the things that matter. Time is passing away. Time is passing away. There are people in Moundsville that will, in the Ohio Valley, that will lose their lives tonight that don't know Christ. You know I'm not being dramatic. You know this is the truth. When that is happening, what will consume our minds and our time? What will we fight over and get annoyed about and frustrated about and be willing to split over and hurt one another, one another, while Christians are dying because they're in the thick of the fight? I don't want to experience pain. I don't. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be martyred. It's not what I'm talking about. But I don't want to drift either. Doggone it, I, I want I want things to mean something. And this, listen, believe Christ, right? We have to engage, beloved. I know that we're saved, but that's the reason why we should engage in this fight. And wh- what do you mean by that? I mean, get over ourselves and proclaim Christ and leave the, the, the effects of it in His hand. Beloved, it's so hard to say because it sounds so mean, but we're not being killed yet because we're not big enough of a threat yet. In Nigeria, people converting to Christianity like in Indonesia or the Central African Republic or countries we don't even remember exist, the the, the problem is is that when you get saved there, you threaten the whole economy. If you can get a church of people together that won't participate, it threatens the whole economy because that's how... In America, we're insulated from this. And, and I want to say thank God in one sense that we don't have it like that, right? That would be foolish not to be thankful for that. But at the same time, that's, this isn't my home. I'm not relying on this to work, right? So we just, we, we, we gotta come away from this world. We gotta decide. Do we want to be a church or do we want to play games? We have to decide. Every church has to decide. Every church has to decide. Especially here when there's so much ease and comfort and money. Why do you think we have those things, beloved? In the warning of judgment for Babylon, the great, God is speaking words of promise to his children. And our God doesn't break his promises. Not only does he call us to come away from this world spiritually, he's also telling us, look, I know, I see, I remember, and I am going To act. They have sown the wind. They will reap the whirlwind. Of almighty God. We're protected from that. We're saved from that. For free. And we did nothing to make us worthy of it. So. God make us evangelists. God make us missionaries. God make us care. Please. In his mercy, God is telling the world ahead of time what is coming. We know this. Most of them don't. We've got to tell them. We've got to tell them. When Jesus arrived, he came to save rebels. That was the purpose of that coming. His life, death, and resurrection mean that God desires most of all, more than anything, to save the world. So he would have us fly to him for refuge from his coming wrath but also from the poisonous, soul-crushing idolatry of this world while we still live in it. There's no reason for believers to chase the wind anymore. So we must fix our eyes on Christ. Remember to whom the book of Revelation was written, beloved. It was written to the church, to them, all the way down to us now. Now this letter is for us and everything in it. So let us not only keep our eyes fixed on Christ, but let us go in mercy as he came in mercy to this world for sinners, to this valley for sinners. Because that's what we are. Because today, this day, at least as of 724, is the day of salvation. Let's look to Christ. Beloved, your sins are forgiven if you are in Him. You have nothing to fear anymore. Nothing. And nothing that you should lean on here as your hope. Nothing. Not even this place. Nothing. Let us look to Christ. Would you stand, please?